We are bringing together imperfect people in pursuit of a whole life. Welcome to the Pathfinder Church Message Podcast. This week, Pastor Doug shares his message on understanding Christocentric interpretation. feel the need to start off this morning with a disclaimer. You see, the topic for this week is one that all of my seminary professors warned me, never, ever, ever teach this to your congregation. And while you know, their, their concern is that it's a difficult topic, it's one that's unsettling to a lot of people, and I think that you just need to leave this one to the pastors. Let, let the pastors wrestle with this because your average church attender is just, they're just not up for this important topic. And yet, as we look around us and we see all the ways that Christianity uh, in, in a lot of ways is going off the rails, I, I continue to believe that what we need is better and more informed Bible readers. We can't just leave the Bible stuff to the pastors anymore. We need you. We need all of Christians that want to make a difference in the world to be the best Bible readers you can be, which means you need this topic for today as difficult as it might be to really engage with. Because if you've been with us at all this series, we think it's so important for you to be able to read the Bible, to read it well, that we've given you each week a different tool, uh, a thing that you need to bring uh, so that you can read scripture well. We've talked about genre and context and translations. And these are all very important tools that you should have in your tool belt if you wanna be a studier of scripture. But there's one more thing, one more thing that we're gonna be talking about this week. And if you get this thing wrong, even if you use the other three tools right, you can still get pretty far astray in your understanding and reading of scripture. So I'm not gonna tell you what the thing is yet, I'm gonna start by asking you a question and see how it lands on you. So here's my question. For you, wherever you are in your own Bible familiarity, if you've been reading the Bible, just started, or if you've been reading the Bible for decades, here's the question. Which book of the Bible would you say is the least important? Someone was to make you rank them, and you'd be like, ah, we could probably do without that one. Which one would you put on the chopping block? Or maybe it's a little softer to ask it this way. Which book of the Bible is the most important? Is that easier? Which one's the most important book that we should all read and we should privilege more than any of the other books? Now, I suspect that that question is just lands pretty uncomfortably on you. That would be like asking a parent which of their three kids they love the most, right? Like that's just, it's a terrible question. Don't ever ask that question of a parent, right? It, it feels like a, a weird thing. It feels maybe blasphemous or sacrilegious to even ask. Like who, are, like who are we to judge the Bible or prioritize which, uh, which books are more or less important? Uh, and in fact, this, um, this tension with that question reflects something that's a, a pretty true thing about the American Protestant Christian experience. And so as we, as we grapple with that feeling, and I, I want you to sit with that feeling for a little bit, I want to bring your attention to one particular Bible verse. Uh, the verse is 2 Timothy 3.16. And this is a verse that has been used heavily for the last several decades uh, as a defense of Scripture. That when we're talking about why is the Bible trustworthy, why is it uh, inerrant and inspired, this is the verse that 90% of the time is what gets used as defense of that. Uh, all Scripture is God-breathed 
and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness and, and it goes on. Okay, 2 Timothy 3.16. This is, this is the verse, whether you've ever seen this verse before or not, I promise you, every pastor, preacher, theologian you've ever heard has this verse in their, in their tool belt, uh, in their arsenal, and they use it to defend the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. Now, there are a couple of issues with this verse. This verse is a little more complex than you might think. And if you use the tools we've given you over the last three weeks, you can already begin to see some of the reasons why we might need to be a little careful how we use this verse. First of all, genre. Is this a general epistle, uh, a letter that's intended for all Christians to live their lives and be informed? Or is this a pastoral epistle, which means it's a letter just for Timothy or pastors in the church? to use, right? Genre matters. It changes how you read this verse. Translation matters. Did Paul mean the same thing with this phrase, God breathed, as we mean now with our 21st century scientific uh, approach to life? Probably not. And then, just as importantly, context, the, the context of this is that there's no way Paul was intending this to be a verse that, that scientifically defended the inerrancy and inspiration of the Bible, the way we use it today. First of all, because the Bible that we have today wasn't what he was talking about. This book wasn't in the Bible yet. Uh, at most, what he was referring to is all Old Testament scriptures our God breathes. So Paul wasn't using it that way. And so when we use this verse, and again, I have not seen this verse used in just about any other context other than defending the inerrancy of scripture. When we use it that way, we're falling into one of the fallacies that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. And remember that one? When you use a Bible verse just to prove a position, it's proof texting. And so sadly, the state of contact, the state of conversation in our world is that this verse is primarily used as a proof text for something that it was never meant to be at all. But above and beyond all of those things, and you could spot those things if you use the tools that we've given you, there's actually one even more critical problem with the way people tend to read and use this verse. And this is what we're going to be getting into today. See, this is what the verse technically says in English. However, I think that there's a different way that we tend to read this verse in English. So this is the connotation I think most Americans tend to naturally put on this verse. All scripture is God-breathed. And therefore, every single Bible verse is equally useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Right? Doesn't that kind of sound a little more natural? But yeah, every verse is important. That's why they're all in the Bible. They wouldn't be there if they weren't important. And there is a term for this approach to the Bible. You don't have to remember it. Uh, the term is this is a reformed literal hermeneutic. That's what this is describing, this idea that the Bible is all equally, literally true, and it's all useful to your life no matter who you are, when you are, what you're doing. All the Bible is true, all of it's equally useful, all of it is meant for you in any given time and place in your life. That's that's the, the, the approach to scripture. And you've seen this play out. If you ever have had a mentor or someone tell you that if you need a practice and, and you, you want to connect with God and read the Bible, but you don't know where to start, and they say, here's what you do. You just take the Bible and you kind of flip the pages at random and you just let it fall open to a page. And whatever, whatever's on that page, that's what the Holy Spirit wants you to read in this moment. And anyone ever had someone tell you to do that? Like all high school and college, that was the shortcut that was given to me. If you just want the Bible to speak to you, just pick a verse and a page at random, it'll be good. But look what that reflects. That reflects this idea that every single Bible verse must be equally useful or else that wouldn't work. But if you actually examine this assumption, and that's the problem and why this is an uncomfortable teaching, is that most of us don't ever think about this consciously. 
This is just part of the air we breathe as a part of the American Protestant Christian tradition, that this is just this subconscious assumption that we never actually look at and examine and question it. But if you do, if you pay attention, you start to realize this can't possibly be right. And I'll give you an example of how I fell afoul of this. Uh, When I was teaching confirmation at my last church, I had a policy that every student needed to memorize a new Bible verse every week. But to be kind of gracious and kind because I wanted them to have some ownership over it, I didn't tell them what verse it had to be. I said that you could pick any verse you wanted. It was up to you as the confirmation student to do it, right? Because the reformed literal hermeneutic says, doesn't really matter what verse you pick, because as long as you're picking a Bible verse, it's going to be useful for you. It's going to be beneficial. So I don't need to control it. I'll let you pick whatever you want. And frankly, I assumed most of them would just pick John 3.16 because they'd probably already memorized it that first week. But what happened that first week was I got a lot of John 3.16s, but I had this one kid who came up to me and said, I'm memorizing, I have memorized 1 Chronicles 1.26 today. And I was like, wow, that's a it's a really obscure passage. Like that's like Old, Old Testament book that not too many people read. All right, how cool. You, you picked 1 Chronicles 126. Do you all know what 1 Chronicles 126 says? <laughs> that little rapscallion had Googled shortest Bible verses. And he found this one that was three words long. The joke ended up being on him. He could never remember how to pronounce the names. (laughs) He never actually got this one down. But here's the point. There's no way this verse is as important or useful as something like John 3.16, right? A verse that says God loves the world so much he sends his one and only son that he loves to save the world so we could all have eternal life. Clearly, if we've got some sort of a scale, that verse is more useful and more important than this one. What what could we possibly learn from this verse? So that's just kind of an obvious and somewhat silly example. But here's the thing. We have to do this all the time. We have to prioritize certain passages of scripture over other ones. And in fact, guys, this is why you have Christian denominations. At its most basic, this is why you've got all these different groups of Christians. It's because one of them, a group of them has said, this scripture is more important. This is the one to be prioritized more than the other ones. And then some other group have said, uh, I don't think that one's so important. I think this one over here, this is more important. And at its most basic level, that's why you have Christian denominations. Because you're, they're picking and choosing what passage of scripture matters most. I'll give you an example. Acts 19, this is in the Bible, it's an important verse, but it describes the early evangelistic movement of the faith. And so Paul, one of the first evangelists, he placed his hands on the new believers and the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Now, if you read this verse and you say, that's important. That's a marker of how do you know that someone's a real believer? How do you know that the Holy Spirit is active in their life? Well, we've got, we've got biblical evidence that they're going to speak in tongues and prophesy. And if you think that's the most important verse, that's going to become your measure of a faithful believer. You're going to kind of look at the people in your church and you say, oh, have, you, have you spoken in tongues yet? If you haven't, I'm not sure you've got the Holy Spirit. They're going to emphasize that verse. And other denominations are going to say, I don't think that verse was meant to be that important on the hierarchy. Like that was an example, but believers in general have the Holy Spirit in some other ways that the Bible also talks about. This is also how you reconcile contradictions in scripture. I'll tell you, I do not believe that the Bible contradicts itself in any place. I do believe 
that there are parts of the Bible, certain verses, that you have to interpret in light of other verses. They're both true, but one of them is like the defining true and the other one kind of slips under the umbrella of the first one. Let me give you an example of this. Here's a really important verse. In fact, one of my personal favorite verses uh, of all time. 2 Corinthians 4.17, it says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Such an encouraging verse when life is hard and you're feeling it, right? But let me, let me really summarize it for you. What this verse is, is at its most basic level saying, it's saying our suffering earns heaven. That's what that verse says. At its most basic, our suffering is earning heaven. So then you look at a verse like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and that says this. It says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. It's not by human works so that no one can boast. This is saying heaven is a gift. It's nothing we earn. And so how do you reconcile Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 and 2 Corinthians 4, 17? You have to look at one in light of the other one. All right, so if, if you say that Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is the, is the most important one, this is the one that's saying it was meant to describe heaven. We don't earn heaven. God gives us heaven as a gift. So then you go back to 2 Corinthians 4 and you say, all right, so what this must be describing is that our suffering, it's helping us, it's, it's achieving something for us towards that eternal glory that outweighs them all. It's not earning the eternal glory, but maybe it's achieving uh, some maturity or it's giving us some perseverance or it's giving us perspective on the sufferings of this life so that we're more ready for heaven when it's given to us as a gift by God, right? You, you can interpret 2 Corinthians 4.17 in light of Ephesians 2.8 and 9, but we gotta be real, you could go the other way. You could say, actually, this is the more important verse that's describing how heaven is accomplished, that our suffering is actually critical to this whole eternal glory. And so the Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 verse, that must just be saying, hey, works in general don't earn us heaven. It's ultimately a gift from God. However, our suffering is so important because suffering is also earning it for us as well. And so if you interpret this as the more important verse and Ephesians is in light of this one, then suffering becomes a really critical part of the faith and you then become Catholic, right? That's how you get there. If you go the other way, if you say, oh, no, 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 it's Ephesians 2, 8, 9, that's the prioritizing verse. If we interpret this in light of, of that one, then you become Lutheran. Both believe the Bible. They think it is completely true. They honor it. They, they, they submit to it. But which verse you place the prioritizing emphasis on and which verse you interpret in light of the other verse changes how you feel about Scripture. And it changes what you think Scripture says. Now, I want to pause here for a moment and just check in with how you're feeling. Because this is a way that we don't talk about the Bible in our circles. Because again, our, our, our hermeneutic, is the fancy word, is different and in fact, the trend of American Christianity has been a trend of rejecting everything that I've just been saying to you for the last five minutes. It's saying we're, the Americans, historically, one of the reasons Puritans came over was they're saying we're sick of the religious wars. We're sick of all the arguing. We're sick of, of Catholics putting to death Protestants and Protestants putting to death Catholics. And you know what? We don't want authorities telling us what to do. We don't want King George or any bishops or anyone saying who, you know, how we should be reading scripture. The American ethic is I'll read scripture for myself and I will trust myself. And just as all men are created equal in our American outlook, so all Bible verses are created equal. 
And what you've seen for 400 years of our country is this pushback and movement away from the denominations that, that prioritize different verses over others, a pushback away from the arguing over the Bible and, and, and the way that the Christians do not treat each other well. And it's towards this idea of a non-denominational reformed literal hermeneutic, this idea that every Bible verse is just all the same and it's all equally powerful and important for us. And that is a noble sentiment. I honor the fact that so much of, of our American tradition is trying to just get the Bible back for what it was meant to be, is trying not to fight and not argue with people. The problem is it doesn't actually work. There's no such thing as a non-denominational church. You can call yourself one all you want. All you're really doing is pretending that you don't prioritize some verses over others. You're acting like you're not taking a stand, but you are. You're just not being honest about it. So you can be a non-denominational church, but at the end of the day, you still have to decide, are we gonna baptize babies or are we gonna wait for them to be old enough to really choose the faith? And no matter which stance you take, you are going to be prioritizing certain Bible verses and you are going to be minimizing others. There's just no way around it, folks. Or if you're painting a picture of the ideal Christian life in your community, that what does it look like to be a true servant of Jesus, and you decide that alcohol has a place or doesn't have a place in the good Christian life, again, no matter which one you pick, you're prioritizing some Bible verses and you are ignoring or minimizing other ones. See, it's, it's a false uh, stance, this idea that we can just believe that every verse is equally important, that we're not gonna prioritize any of them, we're just gonna treat them all the same. No one's actually ever done it, whether they say they're non-denominational or not. But even more importantly than that, and this one's gonna smack you right between the eyes. You ready for this? If we embrace the broad trend of American Protestant approach to the Bible, this reformed literal hermeneutic, if we try to act and live as if every Bible verse is equally useful, then believe it or not, you cannot use the Bible to prove that slavery is an evil atrocity. You can't. Because if everything matters and if no one's allowed to pick and choose and say which ones matter more, you're eventually going to stumble across if you actually read your Bible, which is part of the problem. But if you read your Bible, you're going to come to Leviticus 25 and you're going to get to verse 44. And it says, your male and female slaves are to come from the nations around you. From them, you may buy slaves. You may also buy some of the temporary residents living among you and members of their clans born in your country and they will become your property. You can bequeath them to your children as inherited property and you can make them slaves for life. But the Israelite slaves, you shouldn't rule over them ruthlessly. You should be nicer, nicer to the Israelite slaves. The other slaves, you can treat badly all you want. And here's why this matters. If you use all the tools that we've given you up till now, you look at genre, you look at context, you check your translations, there is no way to interpret this verse as anything other than saying, yeah, slavery's fine. Slavery's all good. And in fact, this is why the Civil War was so brutal in our country's history, because for the first time, you had Christians on both sides in our country that were all valuing and prioritizing the Bible, but they all had fallen into the same way of thinking, this reformed literal hermeneutic. In fact, so this is how Mark Knoll, he's a Christian professor and historian, teaches at Wheaton, uh, he summarizes the problem in the early 19th century this way. 
He said, Here, here's what you finally ended up with. That many northern Bible readers, and not a few in the south, they felt that slavery was evil. They somehow knew that the Bible supported them in that feeling. But unfortunately, when it came to using the Bible as it had been used with such success to evangelize and civilize the United States, the sacred page was snatched out of their hands. Trust in the Bible and a reliance upon, and here's that phrase, a reformed literal hermeneutic had created a crisis that only bullets and not theological arguments could resolve. See, here is the thing, here's the picture. Take yourself back 200 years ago. Everyone valued the Bible, everyone trusted the Bible, everyone thought the Bible was literally true and was important for their lives. Every verse was important, but unfortunately then, if you wanna be anti-slavery, you got branded as anti-Bible because you had to come to that position in defiance of what scripture clearly seemed to teach. And in the same way, if you were someone who valued the Bible, you wanted the Bible to be important, you were forced even against your own moral judgment to say, well, I guess slavery is okay. And American Christianity as a whole was at an impasse. Couldn't break the deadlock, except they finally fought a civil war over it. But they never resolved the theology. And we still haven't today, except, and here's what's amazing, what Mark Knoll calls out, that even in this broad trend of American Christianity, there was in fact a way out of this impasse. There was a faithful orthodox way to read the Bible that wouldn't put you in the spot of having to defend slavery. And there was a group of Americans that had it. It was a bunch of German Lutheran immigrants who settled just down the road from us in Perry County, Missouri. And they had a different way of reading the Bible. In fact, it's the way that we still teach and preach at this church here now today. And here's what it is. You don't give in to this lie, this this subconscious assumption that we treat all the Bible the same. No one does, no one ever has. But the difference is, rather than pretending that we do and and then subconsciously emphasizing stuff, we admit it up front. We say right away, some parts of the Bible are more important, more useful than other parts of the Bible. But now you have to have have a good filter and a rubric for how you pick. It can't just be every individual person gets to say, eh, I like that verse, that one's important, I don't like that verse, that one's not important. That's chaos. Can't do that. You have to have a filter, an approach, a way that you look at scripture that says, this is how I know which verses are the most important ones and which ones need to be understood a little bit differently. And how do you pick which verses are the important ones? Well, good news for you, you just go to Jesus. You go to Jesus himself, and you let him give you the right hermeneutic. Here's how Jesus says that we should read scriptures. He is criticizing the Pharisees of the time. And he's saying, look at you, you're all the Bible experts, but you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. But these are the very scriptures that testify about me. And yet you refuse to come to me to have the life that I would give you. Jesus is recognizing that there are different motivations why people come at scripture. And depending on your motivation, it's going to affect the method that you use, that you bring to your Bible reading. And Jesus is saying, I want to give you the right reason and therefore the right method. The right reason is because scripture testifies about me. That's why you should be reading the Bible, to learn more about me. And so this is the filter that we use now today 
to understand scripture. And it's got a fancy name. I'm going to give it to you. It's called a Christocentric hermeneutic. And this is what our denomination has been teaching for at least 500 years. This idea that Christ is the center of everything in scripture. And that is the hat that we have to put on before we look at any single verse is asking ourselves, how does this verse point to Jesus? And when you have that filter, here's what's amazing. All of these problems that feel so insurmountable, all of these conflicting scripture passages, all of these ethical dilemmas that that we can't figure out, they all melt away. Because when you bring a Christocentric hermeneutic to your approach, it slots everything where it was meant to go in the first place, the way God and Jesus intended us to read it. And now suddenly things work. Let me give you the words of Martin Luther and and just as a reminder of who he was. He was the first person to want everyone to read the Bible. The Catholic Church said, oh, this is, it's not safe enough. It's too dangerous. You can't trust your regular person with the Bible. And Martin Luther is the one saying, yes, you can. Let them read it. Let them be the force of Christianity. But he recognized that you can't just give them the words of scripture. You have to teach them how to read it at the same time, which is what we're doing in this series right now. And so I want to read to you an excerpt from the preface that Martin Luther wrote when he translated, translated the Bible into German. He gave us the answer key. He gave us the Christocentric hermeneutic. Here's how you read the Bible well. And here's what he says. He says, so, concluding a lot of of things. He says, so now after all this, the gospel then is nothing else but the preaching about Christ, son of God and of David, true God and man, and by his death and resurrection has overcome for us the sin, death, and hell of all men who believe in him. Thus, the gospel can be either a brief or a lengthy message. One person can write of it briefly, another at length. He writes of it at length who writes about the many words and the works of Christ as do the four evangelists. So he's saying Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they take a long time and a lot of words describing everything Jesus said, everything he did, all of his miracles, all of his works. Then they're writing the gospel lengthily. But you can do it the other way. You can write of it briefly as well uh, as anyone who doesn't tell of Christ's works, but indicates in a brief way how by Christ's death and resurrection, he has overcome sin, death, and hell for all those who believe in him, as you see in the letters of Peter and Paul. He's saying they don't describe Christ's life in, in huge depth, but they do talk about why it matters for us today, which is why you can read these letters that I've been quoting throughout this message, because they were intended to point to the implications, the after effects of Christ's death and resurrection. So those are good. But see to it, therefore, that you do not make a Moses out of Christ or a book of laws and doctrines out of the gospel, as has been done heretofore. So let me put this in modern language. He's saying anyone that thinks the Bible is primarily God's instructions for humanity, the book of laws for how we're supposed to live morally, that's what he means when he talks about making it Moses or a book of laws, that is not the primary purpose of scripture. Now those things are in there and you should glean some moral teaching from God. You should take some advice from the instructions for life, but keep them in their proper place. Those are less important than anything that talks about Christ. Don't think that the Bible was ever meant to be only a rule book. To know Christ works theoretically, you know, intellectually, and the things that happened to him is not yet to know the true gospel. For you do not yet thereby know that he has overcome sin, death, and the devil. And in the same way, it's not yet knowledge of the gospel when you just know the doctrines and the commandments. So if you're able to memorize or spout the teachings, that's not it either. 
You don't read the Bible rightly. You don't perceive the true gospel until that moment, only when the voice of Scripture comes to you and it says this. It says, Christ is your own. Everything about his life, teaching, works, death, resurrection, all that he is, has, does, and can do, he does it for you. That's the message of the Bible. That's the only true gospel. In the midst of all of these other Bible verses, this is the sentiment you're supposed to get, that everything Jesus did was meant for you and for me. And so see then that you approach the books of the New Testament and the Old Testament as well as to learn to read them in this way, with a Christocentric hermeneutic. And what's amazing about this is if if you understand this, if you get this right, and again, Luther gets this directly from Jesus, Jesus saying, the scriptures testify about me, you will actually prioritize certain books of the Bible and you will diminish others, and that's okay. It's not dishonoring scripture to say that, it's actually putting it through its right filter. And so that question I asked you earlier, which book of the Bible is least important or which one's most important? If it helps, Luther already answered that question for you. So if you want to know, here's the answer. Which books are the most important? In a word, the Gospel of John, the letter of 1 John, all of Paul's letters, especially Romans, Galatians, and Ephesians, and the letter of 1 Peter. There you go. (laughs) Summarized for you neatly. If you want to know the most important books of the Bible, those are the ones. But look what Luther goes on to say. He says, these are the books that show you Christ, and they teach you all that is necessary and salvatory for you to know, even if you are never to see or hear any other book of the Bible or any other doctrine or teaching. He's saying if you just read those handful, even if you didn't read another book of the Bible, you would be fine. Because the Christocentric approach is the answer key for all of scripture. And everything else, when you get that right, falls into place and all the problems go away. So with all of that understanding, let me now show you why this is so important. Let me show you why this matters that we get this thing right, that all the other tools won't help us if we, if we don't see how this lands, uh, that why we believe so deeply here that this Christocentric interpretation is the literal answer key for the whole Bible. We're going to look at Genesis 22, and I just want you to listen and react as I read with you this very pivotal story from the Old Testament. Here it goes. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and he loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and he arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac 
and he laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and he took the ram and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time. And he said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. This is a brutal and terrifying thing to have in the Bible. We got to face this. What does this teach us about God? How are we supposed to interpret this in any way that's not abusive and evil? Can you imagine that family recovering from that? Isaac having experienced all the way up to the last minute, how's he going to trust his dad again? How's he going to trust God again? And here's the thing, if, if all we bring to it, which is what most American Protestant Christians bring to this, if all we have to understand this story is this reformed literal approach, there are only two things that you can learn from this passage. And I checked, I checked all the commentaries, they all agree, this is the thing you learn from reformed literal hermeneutic. First of all, that God demands unquestioning obedience and loyalty. And then the second thing, is does your faith live up to Abraham's? Would you make that sacrifice? Are you a faithful enough believer in God that you would do this thing? And if that's the only approach you have to the scripture, that is death. I can tell you firsthand because I still remember to this day the first time I heard that story. I was nine or 10 years old sitting in church with my dad. And we heard this story and we heard it through the reformed literal approach. And I had to turn to my dad and I had to ask him, dad, would you do that to me? If, if God asked you to do that, would, would you sacrifice me? And my dad is one of the few times I've ever seen him emotional in my life. He said, no, I could never do that. I'm not as strong of a believer as Abraham. And then he said, not only that, I hate this Bible story. I'm so glad my dad said that. That was a very healthy and appropriate thing for him to say in that moment to me. But it shows why this is so important. Because if all you have is this reform literal approach, then that is what you, that's the only conclusions you can draw. And then here's the problem. If this is what you believe, then your faith is not good enough and you never will be. Because your faith won't compare to Abraham's. Any sane, compassionate human being would not do this. But here's what's even more deadly we become those who sit in moral judgment of God. 
When my dad said to me that he would never do that, on the one hand, he was reassuring me as a parent, but on the other hand, he was also saying, how dare God have even asked that of Abraham? And when we bring this approach, we actually become the superior judges of God's morality. And this is what inevitably happens when you bring this approach. And this passage, not only is it brutal and terrifying, but it will lead to terrifying things for your faith and your relationship with God. But what if this is not the way we were meant to read scripture? What if this Christocentric approach that Christ gave us wasn't just a casual comment to the Pharisees, this was the point. It was the answer key for everything. Well, now this whole story is different. This story is not a lesson for us to learn for our moral application. Somehow, some way, this story was intended to testify about Jesus Christ. And when you have that filter, suddenly you start noticing things in this story. God keeps repeating this phrase, your son, your one and only son whom you love. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Sound like John 3.16 where it talks about how God sent his one and only son that he loved to save the earth. You start seeing these motifs that it was three days journey before he led to his death. And at this moment where Isaac is facing death, he is rescued by a godly provision of a sacrificial lamb. Anyone know one of the titles of Jesus? The sacrificial lamb, Passover lamb. And now when you read something like Romans 8.32, one of those good letters where Paul describes that God who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with Jesus graciously give us everything, all the good things in life? With the Christocentric approach, you understand this story was not meant for us to learn an ethics lesson from. It wasn't meant to be a description of how faithful of followers we're supposed to be. It was God revealing himself to Abraham and making sure that the story was shocking enough that we would not forget it. See, if you do some context, you understand that all of the other gods of that time, all of the pagan believers, every system was a sacrificial system that said, the better your sacrifice, the more God would bless you. So how valuable of a thing you want to give to God? You want good rains for the harvest next year? You better give God something good. And in fact, many of the surrounding religions practice child sacrifice. Because if you really want to give God the best thing, well, your kid's the best thing you got. And if you really need rains next year, I guess it's what you do. And the point of this story is not that God demands unquestioning obedience. The point is that God's proving to Abraham and to us that he is different from those gods that he doesn't demand that of us. He would never ask that of us. All of these other religions, they want you to do child sacrifice, not me. I would never do that to you because I love you too much. But you know what else God says? He says, but I will do the unthinkable to rescue you from death. God says, how terrible is that? How brutal is that? How awful would it be to have to sacrifice your son? I would never do that to you, but I will do it to myself. This thing that you wouldn't do, I will do to make sure that every human being has access to a better story. That we, just like Isaac, are spared from death by the sacrificial act of God. This is the truth of scripture. This is how we can suddenly understand that this verse, rather than being some sort of brutal moralistic teaching, is so that we will see and know Christ better. 
So that when he came and when he died on the cross and when he gave himself that name, the Paschal Lamb, all of a sudden these stories will make sense. And we click in, we say, oh my gosh, just like what happened to Abraham. That's what you're doing for us, Jesus. And he stood on the cross and he said, yes, that's exactly what I'm doing for you. This is how we have to read every verse. And this is why it's okay, it's faithful to say that some verses are more important. This is why 2 Timothy 3 is true. All scripture is useful and God breathed, but it's useful in direct proportion to how clearly it points to Jesus. And the stuff that points to Jesus, obviously that's the most important stuff, lock in. But even the obscure stuff, even the weird verses, even Abraham sacrificing Isaac, even that random passage from 1 Chronicles 126, if you look hard enough, you'll see that those three names were the ancestors of Abraham. And it shows how God has taken care of that family line so that he could send Jesus to us. You can look at the story of Abraham and see this is how God was preparing us from thousands of years ago to receive his sacrifice and love right here and now today. It changes everything. The Bible is all true, but it's all true because of that Christocentric hermeneutic. It's true because it points us every verse one way or another to how much God loves us and what he's willing to give up for us. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, your word is so so great. It's so broad. The depth of your wisdom is beyond what any of us could comprehend. And so I thank you, Lord, that not only did you give us this good book, but that you gave us the means by which to understand it. And so Lord, I pray here and now that this lesson would take hold that this would be felt and understood that this is why we can trust this Bible of yours. This is why it truly is good news for all mankind because every word of it points to your son. Every word of it reminds us in one way or another of what you were willing to sacrifice to rescue us from the death that was waiting for each and every one of us. And so Lord, let this be true for all of our reading. Let it be true for how we engage with scripture. Let it be true for how we teach others about scripture. Let every word we say do what you did, which is point to your love, your gospel, and your good news. We pray this in your name, amen. Since all of it's about Jesus, if all of it points to Christ, then let's take a moment right now. I invite you to just reflect quietly to yourself on who is this Lord Jesus Christ that the Bible's been trying to tell us about for 4,000 years. Thanks for listening to the Pathfinder Church Message Podcast. If you would like to hear more messages like this, hit the subscribe button. You can also find more resources at our website, pathfinderstl.org.